Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome, and you are listening to The Economist's weekly podcast on science and technology called Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and on this week's show... We'll explore some of the problems that come with software companies like Facebook and Google offering products for free, but also at the same time, how a different kind of incentive-based system could benefit both people and computers. The intelligence that computers don't have that's hard for them is not the maths. What's hard for them is catching a ball or knowing when to turn left. And that's the sort of thing that ordinary people can teach computers. And we'll hear from Dr. Christopher Smart, a former advisor to President Obama, about a fascinating new possible charter for data regulation. When you were applying a rule to protect personal privacy, you would deliberately assess and analyze how much that would both impinge on national security concerns, but also how much it might restrict and limit the ability for companies to use data for commercial purposes. But first, cybersecurity and cybercrime have burst into the public eye recently, with attacks on individuals, companies, and even governments growing in number over the past few years. As technology blends further into our lives, the threat of cyber attacks grow commensurately. So how should we best protect systems and information, and are invested parties doing enough? Tim Cross, our science correspondent, joins me now to discuss. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. It's true we've seen a lot about cybercrime these days, but of course it's an old problem. What, at its essence, is the problem? Essentially, things are getting worse, and they're getting worse quite quickly. The more the world becomes computerized, then the more cybercrime and poor security matters uh, to everyone. So, you know, we've seen just in the last year, we saw a bunch of cybercriminals, we didn't know who they were, stole $80 million from, directly from the central bank of Bangladesh. And apparently they would have got away with a lot more, except they fat-fingered their keyboards when they were typing out the amount. There's an ongoing investigation in the U.S. right now to what extent did Russia manage to influence the election result, if they did, by the you know, hacks of the Democratic Party's emails. And then you can move away from the big headlines. There's this massive market in just low-level cybercrime. So uh, getting into people's computers, scrambling all their photos and saying, oh, we'll only unscramble them if you send us $400 or whatever, ransomware of trading stolen credit card details. So the problem's been around for a while, but as computer spread, the problem spreads. Fair enough. Lots of problems. But at its origin, there's the problem of securing information infrastructure why can't we do that well? Why can't we just build software that actually is strong? It's really complicated. I mean, if you look at computer software, it's probably the most complicated thing that humans build right now. You look at something like, you know, Windows or Linux. These are the operating systems that run, you know, a lot of the computers that, that run the world. They have millions and millions of lines of source code contributed by, you know, hundreds or thousands of programmers. Uh, bits of them date back decades, maybe. 
There's always going to be mistakes. There's always going to be uh, sort of bugs in the system. And then there's history as well. I mean, you know, the, the, the Internet and, and computers, they all sort of rely on this tall, rickety pile of technologies that go back like 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Everything we have now is built on what was there before. It wasn't until 1994 that some engineers at Netscape said, you know what, it would be really good if, if there was some way to encrypt, to scramble communications when, when you're sending them across the web. And without that, e-commerce wouldn't be possible. So no one was thinking about security back when the foundations were being laid. Now, in the articles that you've produced this week, both the briefing and the leader, the voice of the paper, you talk about the misaligned incentives between the industry and greater society. Tell me more about that. So if I get a, an operating system from Microsoft or Apple or someone, and something goes wrong with it and it crashes and I lose all my data, Apple and Microsoft don't really bear the costs of that. It's just taken as, as a fact of life that software is buggy, the user uses it at his or her own risk. And so for that reason, there's not a great deal of incentive for them to try and produce bug-free software. And it kind of gets worse as well because the whole way that Silicon Valley works, you know, the whole approach, go fast and break things. If you go fast, you will break things. But again, because of this, this sort of cultural assumption and in some countries this sort of legal reality that software companies aren't liable when things go wrong, the incentives for them to do too much about this are kind of weak. To an extent, there's an effect on a company's reputation. But really, the sort of the proof of the pudding is, is, is kind of in the eating. You know, you, you look out there, people spend tens of billions of dollars on, on cybersecurity, and we still have this massive problem. So Bruce Schneier, who's a computer security guru who's been around the block on this many times, he said, you know, when you go home with a computer, people say, well, the first thing you should probably do is put antivirus software on this. You know, don't connect it to the internet until you put antivirus software on this, until you've configured the firewall and so on. And he said, that's a bit like if I go to a, a car dealership and I buy a car and the guy says, great, congratulations on your new car. It doesn't have any brakes, by the way. And I would advise you buy some brakes, you know, before you drive it too far. And in fact, I can recommend some brake dealers that you might want to try. But, you know, we don't ourselves sell brakes. So you're going to have to go and buy brakes from a third party supplier, because otherwise, this thing you've bought is dangerous and won't work properly. And when you put it that way, it's kind of crazy. But it's the way the software industry has grown up. We're all just kind of habituated to it. And it's one big reason why cybersecurity is as big a problem as it is. But you have a solution, Tim, and your solution is the market. I think the solution is going to have to be the market in a way because what's changing now is that in the past, computers mostly dealt with abstract data, you know, ephemeral things. But there's going to be a, a sort of fundamental change, which we're already starting to see, which is that computers are moving in to the real world of, of physical objects and like vulnerable flesh and blood human bodies. Computers, they're going into everything from, you know, medical devices like drug pumps and scanners to bits of your home. And increasingly, they're going to have what in the jargon is called kinetic effects. They're going to have the ability to sort of hurt people and break things. And the reality is, in our society, things that hurt people and can kill them do get regulated. So I think this is coming, whether the industry likes it or not. What they have at the moment is a chance to sort of fix this problem before it gets really bad and governments feel compelled to fix it for them. And so you believe that the introduction of insurance can align the incentives of the industry? Yeah. So someone like Apple or Microsoft or even companies that, you know, you wouldn't normally think of as being software companies, the people who make all these internet-connected gizmos, when things go wrong, if they have a, a financial liability for it, that incentivizes them to get things right. The risk is that 
they become sort of fearful and gun shy and it, it starts to slow the kind of innovation, you know, the rapid pace of innovation that we've seen in computing, which is a great thing and we want more of. So insurance kind of offers a way through that because if a company's taken reasonable steps to do the right thing, but something goes wrong anyway, insurance offers a payout, it, it can make good their losses and they're sort of free to innovate as long as they do it with one eye on security and, and, and one eye on safety. People who don't take those reasonable steps and who keep getting hacked will find their premiums going up and up and up and up and up and maybe eventually no one will want to insure them and they'll struggle to stay in business. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks, Ken. In a previous episode, we discussed the woes of the ride-sharing firm Uber as a handful of senior executives have left the company over the past few months. At one point, we discussed the firm's business model and an acute listener, Philip Cunningham, wrote in after he noticed something he thought was amiss. As he wrote, quote, I've just listened to the Uber Trail of Woes podcast. At minute 1355, Alexander Suich, the U.S. technology editor, says, quote, To be fair, the fundamentals of the business are very good. This is not a company that loses money on every transaction, unquote. But hmm, Philip wrote, Isn't this exactly what the company accounts show? Regards, Philip Cunningham. And Philip is correct. Our correspondent was making a more subtle point but sadly, it was slightly edited out due to time restrictions. What she said was, they're not losing money on every transaction, like some of the ones we saw during the dot-com boom. In other words, some trips are profitable, but some aren't. The ones that aren't are subsidized by the profitable ones, but it's not that every trip is unprofitable. Alas, with hindsight, we probably should have left the point in. We welcome your feedback, so don't forget all of you can get in touch about our content by tweeting us at Economist Radio or writing on our Facebook page or emailing us at radio at economist.com. Next, as big data and artificial intelligence are applied to all sorts of areas of life, from optimizing business to improving healthcare and education, it throws a light on the central valuable resource, the data itself. New European rules on the protection of personal information and new U.S. presidential administration mean that the chances of trade tensions over the cross-border flow of data are high, and this could set back the development of the technology that could bring about so much good. With us in the studio to discuss these issues is Christopher Smart. He formerly served as special assistant to President Obama on the National Economic Council and on the National Security Council, and was a Treasury Department official as well. He's currently at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, but he's working on a report for Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Relations, on data regulation and perhaps the idea of a charter for data privacy to find areas of consensus among European and American policymakers and industry. So, Christopher, welcome. Thank you. Christopher, data privacy. What is the problem? Well, it's not just a problem of data privacy. It's a problem, as you say, that data itself is becoming an increasingly powerful driver of economic growth really around the world. And it's, as I say, more than just a problem of protecting personal privacy. It's also a problem of balancing that requirement with the requirements of national security. And while both of those issues get a great deal of airtime, there is a third and also vital interest, which is in protecting the value of the data itself in driving greater efficiencies in our economies, particularly in the United States and the European Union, but really around the world, as almost any industry you can point to 
grapples with the opportunities of the new technologies at hand. So what could a solution look like to bring together all of these different interests? The issue, I think, that is incumbent upon policymakers is to figure out a way to talk about the problem first before they try to find a way to solve the problem. And I think the idea of a transatlantic charter for data mobility and privacy would allow European and American officials to agree on the basic principles that they need to agree on. Okay, I love it. So tell me more. What would be in this charter? Well, I think it would first begin with a recognition that it is not just a trade-off between two problems, but that there is a third imperative that needs protection as well. And that officials on both sides of the Atlantic would agree that as they were each creating rules for their own jurisdictions, they would really make a deliberate attempt to assess these trade-offs. And that when you were applying a rule to protect personal privacy, you would deliberately assess and analyze how much that would both impinge on national security concerns, but also how much it might restrict and limit the ability for companies to use data for commercial purposes. And I should say it's not just commercial purposes for those companies to make money. There is enormous potential for public policy to be improved with the use of this data. What are some of the specifics inside the charter? Besides agreeing to some of these principles, you would also try and establish mechanisms on both sides of the Atlantic for the right officials to be talking to one another, whether it's the criminal justice counterparts, whether it is the personal privacy counterparts, or whether it is the industrial regulation counterparts. And particularly important, I think, is getting legislators on both sides to talk to each other. Now, you have floated the idea of a so-called rating agency for entities that interact with data. Tell me more about that. Well, part of this stems from the fact that I think all of us download apps or share our data with a variety of different organizations, and we check the box that we have consented to the terms without having read it or certainly fully understood the terms of those agreements. Part of the problem is even if you do read it and do analyze it, the data that you share today may be put to different uses over time. So the notion is for such a complex set of issues, you would try to encourage a third-party rating agency, sort of like an underwriter's laboratories that checks out new car models, that can give a consumer with very little time or expertise the chance to understand that if I share my data with company X, they protect it with a certain amount of security, they will use it for certain purposes, and help provide a more accessible a more intelligent judgment for consumers as they make these choices. Christopher, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Finally, more and more companies, specifically those based on the Internet, are offering their services for free. This may seem like a blessing, but what problems could follow a system like this and how might we change it for the better? Glenn Weil is a senior researcher at Microsoft Research in New York, and he has been grappling with exactly this issue the problem with free. Sumeya Keynes, our economic correspondent, spoke to him about why this is indeed a problem. You have these firms that are just sucking up so much of the value in the current economy, and nobody pays them and they don't get paid except that they suck all this money out of the advertisers. And if increasingly people aren't being able to be paid for their labor, if there are these new jobs of the future associated with computers and so forth are allocated just to the small number of people who work for these big firms, 
uh, we're not going to have a society that has a healthy flow of uh, money. So are you advocating a situation where we had to pay for things like Facebook or Gmail? And you'd get paid. And that's the important part. Yes, you pay for the car that you buy, for the food that you bring home to your family, but you also get paid for the labor you provide. And we're increasingly moving to a world where, yes, there's many things that you don't pay for, but also you have no chance to earn to buy the things that you need. And that's what we need to try to avoid by offering people compensation for the valuable teaching that they're doing of computers. So if you did that, if you both started making people pay to use these services but also pay them to get their data, there would be a distribution of winners and losers there, right? Absolutely, but I think one remarkable thing um, that I don't think is widely understood is that the intelligence that computers don't have that's hard for them is not the maths. What's hard for them is catching a ball or knowing when to turn left. And that's the sort of thing that ordinary people can teach computers. And I think we can have a new society with a huge class of blue-collar intellectual labor, which is really surprising when you think that computer programmers are the only ones who have anything to add. But I think that's really the wrong way to think about things. So what kinds of things would people do to earn money? Would it be allowing Facebook or Skype to record their conversations so that they could train the algorithms to understand speech? Or would it be essentially giving them data on your search habits so that they could then use that information to sell you more things? Well, those are the things that are closest to what we currently imagine. But in a world where we're really paying for this and it becomes something that people get used to, there's many other things that could happen. So a mallard is a kind of duck. And most people don't know what a mallard looks like. But if you show people one picture of a mallard in one position, they will, with 99% confidence in any picture, pick out a mallard. It's just you sort of get a sense of what the thing looks like. And in the process, rather than having an ornithologist label a bunch of examples of mallards, any ordinary person can do that. And that can then be used to train a computer to recognize mallards. And that's, that's a very trivial example, but there's many examples like this. Many of us have Skype conversations frequently. Uh, imagine that you could earn a little bit of income by just commenting those conversations to make them more useful for a computer they're recording your conversations anyways and learning on them. But if they knew what was going on, if they could just ask you little questions and you could just get bits of payment for that, you might have the chance to really add a lot more to these systems. So what kind of thing? If someone made a joke, you'd say, that was a joke? That was a joke. That was really hurtful to me that they said that. I found that to be racist. That racist, that's a great example. So we're trying to teach computers not to say racist things. This was a big controversy. Microsoft had a major problem with this. But how do we learn that? We don't have that many examples of that was that person being racist. We might think all the time, oh, that guy was racist. But how do we teach computers to avoid that sort of behavior? We need people to tell us that. And that's the sort of thing that's not being told. And that if we were paying, if we had a system, then we might really be able to learn that. So through economics, we could help computers learn to be less racist. Yes, or more compassionate, or more thoughtful, or uh, more creative. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Samaya. Glenn Weil there, talking to Samaya Keynes. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Babbage. If you did, please take a moment to rate it on your podcast app or on iTunes. And if you like our journalism, please consider subscribing to the newspaper. You can do so at subscription.economist.com. Any thoughts on this week's show or any of our audio output, please email us at radio at economist.com. And in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.